<laughs> it's Sam Jones, Flash Gordon. I'll see you at the Modesto Con, July 9th and 10th at the Modesto Center Plaza. You better be there. Come on. Yeah. Geekish Cast, episode 82. Gordon's alive. Life after Flash with Lisa Downs. Welcome back to Geekish Cast. I'm your host, Jeremy, and I am joined by Lisa Downs of Spare Change Films. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Good. Um, we we tried this once before. We certainly did. And um, our, our schedules are hard to match up, so I, I thank you for taking the time to do this. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I do have one question for you. You seem to fly around a lot. Are you a spy? Uh, isn't it the case that if I was, I, I couldn't say? Oh, that's a good point. I didn't really think yeah. about that. I mean, we Brits okay. are known to be mysterious, so you never know. Yeah, but I, I think it's a fake mystique sometimes. It could be. Yeah. But we can't yeah. tell you that either, I'm afraid. Oh, gosh. You are full of great points this morning. Thanks. Well, it's my yeah. afternoon, so I've had all day to kind of warm up. Oh, yeah. See, I'm still, like, all groggy and still getting into it, so, yeah. Did you have a late night last night? You know what I did? Um, actually, so, Lisa, the reason I am having you on... Um, not just to talk about your general history as a filmmaker, but you are working on a project that I am, uh, I believe the term is bum over tea kettles about. <laughs> Good. But you're working on a film called Life After Flash, yeah. which is kind of the 35 years since the Flash Gordon film was made. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, when I started it was 35 years. I think it's 36 now. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think, a long overdue documentary, and it does surprise me that no one has actually done anything on the film or Sam before. So uh, so I hope I live up to the fans' expectations. Now, were you a fan of the film yourself? Oh, God, yes. So I was a fan. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I've definitely been a fan since I was really little. And um, me and my sister used to watch it a lot. It was one of those films that in England just play every year religiously. So we were always excited when it was time to to watch Flash again. That's fantastic. You know, for me, um, now I was born in the early 70s. So for me, this movie came out when I was like six or seven. But I was already a fan of the old Buster Crab serials and the comic strips and et cetera. Okay. I've never, so when the, I've never seen them. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, I'll have to see what I can get put together, maybe send you something just so you can check them out for a frame of reference. That would be one thing. Yeah. So when this movie came out, you know, I well, like I said, it was like seven or eight, so I was just excited. And it was so bright and so colorful and just so over the top and also, so full of just beautiful women, like every every time the camera moved, you know. But what strangely happened to me, as much as I loved that movie when I was a little kid, from about the time I was 15 to 25 or 26, I couldn't stand to have it on. I was embarrassed Really? Why was yes. that? Um, I, don't, I don't know if something happened where the campiness, like I was so self-conscious that the campiness bothered me, like I was worried somebody would see me enjoying it. Was it not cool? That's what I'm wondering. I, I think that probably has something to do with it. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. But you then regrew uh, to love it, did you? Well, and then again, in my 20s, what I started doing was uh, collecting the comic strips. Right. And the comic strips are, and, and you'll notice there's a, a theme that goes with this. So the comic strip is Flash confronts Ming or one of his henchmen, 
gets a death sentence, they put him to death, and then you come back for the next one, it turns out he's not dead or he's brought back to life, and you'll notice the movie, every beat in the movie is, is Flash dead? Is he going to die? Nope, here he is, yep. now he's riding a rocket yeah, cycle. Yeah, true. So I got to a point where I was like, this is probably the truest way to take that comic strip and make it into a movie. And then because you had a newfound appreciation for him. Absolutely. And ever since, you know, I have not gone back and thought, you know, that I was being uh, too cheesy about it. You know, sorry, I'm drinking tea as well, so there's ever silence. I'm probably mid-sip. Um, oh, that's okay. I just think you should own whatever you like. You know, high school and, you know, that kind of age, it's an interesting time, but just embrace it. I, I don't know if it's the same over there, but I think kids here... Now, it's much easier for them to do so. Oh, yeah, very um, much. So anyways, Lisa, how did you, or what got you first involved in filmmaking? Oh, in filmmaking? Well, yes. when, I was, when I was growing up, I knew I wanted to be in film somehow, and I actually wanted to be an actor. And I used to watch mm-hmm. the Oscars religiously, and I had my Oscar dress designed and my earrings, and it was like what Ariel wore on The Little Mermaid when she became a, a human. So, you know, the oh. pearl drop earrings. And... and um. Just that's that's all I wanted to do. And when I got to 16, 17, when I finished high school and went to university, my mum said to me, you have to have a backup career with acting. So I went, okay, well, if I'm going to have a backup career, I'll make what I want to be in. And then when I did my degree in TV production, I realized that I wasn't I wasn't good at acting. And I really liked being behind the camera. So that's kind of what led me into getting into the industry. Um, and then I, I, then I kind of started on documentaries and then veered into factual entertainment. And then this was all working for the production companies where you do contract work. Um, and I just was sitting in the office, always organizing all these ideas that people had and they were traveling and they were doing what they wanted and their passion projects. And I just thought, I want to be doing that. So I quit, went uh, freelance. Um, and so this is my first big project, um, as a freelancer, that's kind of my own um, and it's and it's been tough, but I was I was adamant that I wanted to be something that I was really passionate about, and it just kind of fell into um, a, a friend of mine knew Sam, and then that's how this kind of happened. But I've I've always known that I wanted to work in in media, um, but yeah, it was in front of the camera, and then I realised that I wasn't very talented at that, so I quickly <laughs> changed course. Uh, was, I, was there a, a particular adv- event that made you think you weren't good in front of the camera? I, when I started doing this acting course about acting in front of the camera and they film you and then you watch your back. When I was in high school doing plays, no, we didn't even, back in my day, we didn't even have video cameras. So um, I never saw myself until this class. And then I went, Ugh. you know, when you watch it like an independent film and then the acting's really bad and you think, how can someone not know and I saw it and I thought, that's it. That's like really bad film acting. <laughs> so I just I cut it <laughs> quickly. But you went from stage and then tried to do film. I mean, you say I went from stage to film. Well, I was in a high yes. school play. And then I, then I did a commercial and then I went to acting classes. And yeah. I, yeah. So but I, did, I, did you at least enjoy the stage aspect of it when you did it? Oh, God, yeah. Okay, I, I just I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, completely, but then I just thought, am I embarrassing myself? So, so I, I quickly changed courses. Okay, oh, a little self consciousness in there then. Well, yeah, I, or just I know what my talents are. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that. Yeah. So, so then you went into the production side, yeah. and it, 
Okay, and then that got you to decide to go out on your own. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a long time. It was over maybe ten years that I had done it, and and the well, I, the first thing that I did when I went freelance is I directed a feature film, um, a drama. So it mm-hmm. wasn't in the doc- documentary genre, but I had my background in television was documentaries. Fifty um, percent of it was documentaries. So I had always had this passion for documentaries, and and I liked the idea of feature documentaries. Um, I think there's something really special about them. So that's kind of how I made my choice to go into that. I enjoy doing the the feature film and I'd like to do more short films, but um, I enjoy this more at the moment. Okay. And that one, the one you did there, the, uh, what would you even call that? Just the fictional piece. Mm -hmm. Did you have a good time doing that? Was there something about it that you did or didn't enjoy that made you focus more on documentaries or Um, you were just so into documentaries that you couldn't get past that? I think... I think for anyone's first film, it would have been a miracle to say everything went right and it was a completely brilliant time. You know, there were elements that was really, it was really fun, but there were a lot of elements where it was really stressful and really tough. But it, it really just comes down to the the medium that I prefer and that's documentaries over the drama. I, I enjoy the process of researching and interviewing and editing documentaries over trying to write a script or reading someone else's script and doing storyboards. And, you know, there's a whole different process, like pre-production, production and post-process to both of them. And I, it's, I, yeah, I just prefer the documentary more. Okay. So what was your first documentary you made after you went freelance? Uh, well, the actual very first one I made was at university. Um, mm-hmm. For my third year, you have to do a major piece. Um, and I chose, to, I wanted to do something different. So I decided, I was living in Australia at the time. So I decided I wanted to do a documentary in India. And originally I wanted to do something at the base of Everest, um, just because I hadn't seen anything on it. And then my mum had read this book by the Dalai Lama's sister. Her name's Jetson Pema. And she had a Tibetan children's village, which is where they set it up in northern India. So all the exiled Tibetans can still learn Tibetan, learn the religion and keep the culture going until they can go back to Tibet. So I just thought, mum said, oh, why don't you email? I was like, oh, okay. So I emailed the, the address in the book and she came back and it was pretty, it was literally the email said, how about 10 o'clock on April the 29th? That was the date and the time. Um, and so then it suddenly got locked in and I, my, <laughs> my dad went on who wants to be a millionaire, won a, month, a bit of money, bought the camera and the plane tickets, and then I went over and with my mum and my dad and a friend for ten days to India to do this this documentary. And I and um, but it was good. I I was proud of it. Like it was only twenty minutes. Um, but for my first one, I I really liked it. And then um, then I went into the other people's productions. And then so the the other one that I did when I was first freelance was there's this um this group of islands off the coast of Portugal called the Azores, which, mm-hmm. um, I've, have you heard of them? Well, we actually have a real heavy Portuguese, um, oh, nice. uh, population here. And a lot of them are from the Azores. Well, the, the Azores. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> in England called them the Azores, but the Azores, <laughs> the Azores. Um, and they used to, they used to whale and then they completely turned their culture around and, um, now whale watch and they use all the kind of old, viewing posts that they used to look out for the whales now for the boats instead and you know it's it's quite an embracement if that's a word of of their old culture into a new one so I'm I did a short documentary on that and the history um 
with a view to getting funding to do a feature in an event, a charity event. So that's kind of in the, the process in the background at the same time. So, Amazing. you know, there's bits and pieces. Yeah. I just, I want to just real quick, one of our closest friends is from uh, Glasgow. She's Glaswegian. Right. And the way, the way you said, the way I said Azores sounds to me the way she makes fun of my accent when I speak sometimes. <laughs> so I'm surprised it, she's Glaswegian. I'm surprised you can even understand her. I, yeah, I live not too far from, well, Scotland in England. Okay. And, um, yeah, it, I, I can't understand a lot of people. I mean, it's really thick dialect. But what I kind of like, and this might be the same as America in England, you can pretty much tell what city someone's from, from their accent. And I don't think America is so specific. Maybe you're just, oh, you're, you must be from Minnesota or like a state thing. But here it's literally. We, we have some specific ones. Like you're saying our Minnesotan or, um, or Minnesotan. We've got a few different southern ones. We definitely have an eastern board. But we have, much like you have BBC English where the, the accents kind of bled out a little mm-hmm. bit. We have what's just like Midwestern, which is like my accent. I could be from Kansas, Oklahoma, or Central California. Right just because it's just almost like a, an accent neutral for America. Mm-hmm. Now, in the U.K., you guys have like every two square blocks can have its own exactly. accent. Exactly. I mean, yeah. you, you can know within 10 miles, like, the difference in, uh, you know, accents. It's, um, right. it's, it's really fascinating. You know, I, some people are really good at picking it. I'm not too much. I kind of get if they're north or south. Or, but some people are like, oh, you must be from, like, North Hull or Bolton, or, you know, it can be quite specific. Not a skill I have, I'm afraid. Yeah, and see, yours, now, I know you grew up in Australia, but I, if I met you on the street, I would have no idea where you were from. See, see mine's, it's a hard, that, if you got it, that was a tough one, because mine's a tricky one, I think, because people here think I sound really Australian, and Mm -hmm. I think I sound really Australian, but then people in Australia, as soon as you say, oh, my God, you're so British, so... Yeah, I think I have kind of a weird hybrid accent. Right. Definitely, I get some twangs, Aussie twangs in. Oh, yeah. Well, I can tell you, after about three drinks, the Oki in me comes out. (laughs) Really, with a really weird, like, not even quite an accent, but a weird affectation of words words that I use. What, like what? What's an example? Oh, like I might shift the uh, the emphasis in a word to something towards the end so it sounds a little more southern or drawly. A draw. Yeah, like I'll extend something out, or I may suddenly start using terms like fair to Midland when I mean okay. Have you been to London then? I have not. Now, here's the thing. We were going to go last year. Okay, so my wife and I are planning this out. The next thing I know, my wife has, oh, and then we'll go to Edinburgh, and we'll go to Glasgow, and then we'll go to Paris. And I'm like, but I just want to go to London. Mm. I just want to go to London. It is a great city. And so what, did you? Did it get too big of a trip? It got too big, so I think we're going to do Vancouver this year and then kind of step up to it. It's a shame you didn't come out last November with the reunion. I know. Mm. I I know. Hindsight is always 2020, you know. It is. I I would have loved to have been there for that. Yeah, it was pretty special. And also, yeah, London, if you like history, London's definitely not going to disappoint. I mean, mind you, Europe. Europe has an incredible history, so anywhere around here. Well, that's the thing, though. In London... I mean, you, you can set your hand down on the road, and Roman soldiers marched there once, mm-hmm. you know, fifteen hundred years ago. Yeah, and it's that's what I want to see, you know. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you can do the same thing in Paris or Bath or. It depends know. what kind of history you like. I mean, I grew up. I was born in England. I grew up in Chester, which was 
it's still the most it's got the most intact Roman wall around the city still, but it was very much a Roman settlement. So there's the Roman amphitheater and there's lots of Roman ruins and Really? Yeah, it's really cool. It's up near the north of Wales, north north coast. I would definitely want to see that. Um, and also Hadrian's Wall is something else I want to check oh, yeah. out too. That's worth seeing too. We've got some good stuff here. Mind you, I really want to get to Oklahoma. Oklahoma, really? Yeah, I do. I'm obsessed with America. So, really? um, yeah, unfortunately, you make it too hard for us Brits to come and live there. Um, I, yeah. I remember in the 70s, well, I don't remember, my dad told me, I mean, this is Canada, but they were paying people to go and live there. So he moved when he was in his 30s and, uh, and got the flight for free. They paid for rent and it doesn't happen like that anymore. No, but as I understand it, Canada still has to let in a million immigrants a year. But I'm, is that not the same as America? You just have a quota. See, the thing with me is that to get the green card, um, mm-hmm. you can't be British, but like Australians, New Zealand. Unfortunately, I've got an Australian passport, but I wasn't born there, so I can't. I'm not eligible. But I think you have a quota of nationalities, and I think you've got too many of us to, to let any more in on the green card. That's, that's such a weird thing to me. I know. I just think if we're nice and we really like to, to live there. You know, yeah, give us a chance, well, America. Well, like I used to say, you now this is going to be a really dated reference, but I used to think our immigration policy should be: if you can name three of the characters on Friends, we should like. <laughs> that's that's a good policy to have. Yeah, I thought Maybe so. If you go into politics, um, I couldn't. I would never get elected to anything because, like, um, I we lived in the Monterey Bay, which the city we lived in was super, super, super liberal. I mean, like super liberal. Um, and over there, I was kind of considered to be conservative. And then we moved back to Central California. People look at me like I'm like this super arch liberal. So I'd never get elected to anything. Well, <laughs> never know. say never. You said you had a friend who knew Sam J. Jones. And uh, just so people know, we're, we're specifically talking about the 1980s Flash Gordon movie uh, that was produced by Dino De Laurentiis. Yes. Sam J. Jones starred in it as Flash Gordon. Yes. And you know what, Lisa, off the top of my head, I just who directed it? Mike Hodges. Mike Hodges. For some reason, that just fell right out of my head. It's all right. Yeah. So that was a movie that here in the States didn't really catch on, was big in the UK, and I believe in Europe in general. Yes. Um, and it surprises all, me that it didn't mm-hmm. catch in the States. It really does. But maybe it was too European. There definitely is a European sensibility to it. Yeah. I don't know if that was the problem or if maybe like me during that period where I was kind of embarrassed by it, the, the cheese factor was just too high for some people. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, someone, we interviewed um, one of Sam's good friends, Patrice, Patrick Senespree, who's been mm-hmm. so many things. Um, and he, his theory on it was that at that time, there were a lot of really serious films like um, Star Wars. And, and so it was a bit too left field for the, what the audience was experiencing in the cinemas at the time. But, you know, I just always thought maybe it was too European and it just kind yeah. of went over people's heads a little or they didn't quite get it or it didn't appeal. Yeah, I, I've never been sure what it is. Um, but it was also kind of plagued with some problems at the end as well. Yes. The filming of it. So even yes. if it had caught on enough to get a sequel – there probably wouldn't have been enough people to get together to do it properly. Uh, it, mm, yes and no. Um, I think, I mean, there were sequels planned, um, mm-hmm. but it didn't. I, uh, some people think that the marketing of the film may have hindered 
the first one because you always, well, no, not always, but often you mark it with the the protagonist of the film. And because there was no actor to promote the film, they tried to market it using Ming um, from, you know, the baddies being the, the face of the film. And, and some people think that that may maybe hinted it as well. So I think all of that comes down to if they had a main actor, they would have done sequels and, and um, done, I don't know if they would have done well, but they would have done sequels if they had Sam to do. That. At least given it a try at that point. Pardon? I said they would have at least given it a try at they that point. They had signed on to do sequels. There was at least two con- um, contracted. Some people have said six, but there were at least two. Um, but, uh, you know, things things happen and stuff happens oh. with Universal and it just it didn't work out. Yeah, and I'm going to try to stay off of specific questions because I want people to help fund your movie so we get it made. Yay, so thank learn. you. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, and also, since we're talking about that, um, why don't you give us your websites where you're doing fundraising and all that stuff? Uh, well, the main site, lifeafterflash.com, links to the Indiegogo page. So that's the best way to check out the project. And there's also the Facebook page, which I update all the time um, on whatever's happening. And if you want to know the status of the film, um, then that's the best place. But the, the crowdfunding is from lifeafterflash.com. Fantastic. So you had a friend who knew Sam, yes. who played Flash Gordon. Yeah, so he was scheduled to go, I don't know if you have the, the jump show over there where celebrities do ski jumps. Not that I have seen. It must be a very British thing. So there's a show Could where be. celebrities do ski jumps, um, and he was slated to go on it, but he broke his arm in, or shoulder in rehearsal, so he didn't actually go on the show, but my friend was on the crew and, uh, and got to know him quite well. And when I was out one night with her, I was just talking about that I had just gone freelance and I wanted to do these projects that I was really passionate about. Um, and she then mentioned that she had worked with Sam and I had a mini fangirl moment. And, you know, you didn't, there was no real thought behind it. It was literally, I just said, I would love to do a documentary on him. I don't know what he's done since film. Wouldn't it be fascinating if we did a, a film on Flash Gordon? And she went, that oh, sounds great. Let's put a proposal together and send it to the agent. And then, so I did and she did. And then he loved it. And suddenly I was in Texas meeting him and filming for the crowdfunding campaign. Fantastic. So you have been to Texas at least. I've been twice. I, um, <laughs> I, I really like Texas. The first time we went was in Laredo for the South Texas Collectors Expo Comic Con. I think okay. that's right. Um, which is where we met him and kind of sat down and went through the rewards. And he was very hands on from the beginning because I wanted him to be as happy and comfortable with it as possible. So we agreed everything and we did a little video for the campaign and started just filming. Um, and then. I'd never crowdfunded before, and that was a huge eye-opener for me, that whole thing, because I just, I hadn't planned, I hadn't planned it very well, I was asking for too much money, I didn't allocate enough time to promote it and build an audience, so after a week of of it being launched, it was only about a week after I got back from Texas, um, I cancelled it and just kind of restructured it and made a plan, and then for the next six months built an audience, and then that's when I did the second campaign on Indiegogo. And from that, the, the money raised was for another U.S. trip. Um, so part of that was the San Antonio, the Alamo City Comic Con. So we did that last September, which was really cool. Oh, San Antonio is a really nice city. Yeah, yeah. we had some really, really lovely friends who uh, who put us up. And, um, you know, we met them in Laredo. And that's what we really liked about 
the kind of community that go to Comic Cons is everyone was willing to help. You know, we had someone design artwork, we had someone willing to, you know, help with certain aspects of the crowdfunding. We had these guys, the Egans, they were lovely, uh, putting us up in San Antonio, and it just it was really it was a really really lovely kind of community, and it really helped the project. Kind of, how did you go about creating an audience for a project you wanted to make? Um, it was literally just social media. I did. I set up the Facebook and the Twitter and just followed people. I had a, um, a, a Skype call with a guy called Chris Gore, who's in, who was a presenter and is kind of a geek world name. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he basically just Skyped me and said, I've looked at your campaign. This is what I think you could do better. And he was really good at kind of teaching me the, the ins and outs of Twitter and going through and following people and then unfollowing those who don't and then following people that they follow and you know, that was a daily thing for me is like interacting with people on Twitter and following people and making sure I'm only following people that are in this genre and would be appropriate. And then on Facebook, it was the same, just trying to connect with people. And I, I was very lucky. People were very kind putting, doing articles about me, um, podcasts about the project and, and it kind of just slowly built that way, but it took six months. Um, and it, and through through things like um, the reunion, I had done sponsored posts for the ticket things, and so from that, people started following too. And um, but it, it was it was m- more time consuming, I guess is the word, than I thought. Uh, it was harder than I thought. I I have noticed, um, you know, obviously I started well, not obviously I started this podcast in January. Mm. And the people I've been interacting with, I noticed that the guys that have built like a big, like have a huge following, I mean like 10, 15, 20,000 people. Yeah. They work Twitter like it's a full time job. They're on there. Job. It really feels like, and I was really adamant that I wanted to reply to people and reply to messages and let people know that it is just me behind. Like if you send a message on Facebook, it'll be me responding. It's not like a team, it's not a production where I have coordinators and researchers and you know, APs and it's, it literally is just me and, um, and Ash, the producer who comes to help me shoot and, and it's kind of the backbone of my sanity. Um, it, it is just like that two people doing this project. So, um, that was important to kind of have that connection with people. So you have that relationship and it was nice at the reunion. A lot of the people that batched the film, um, came. So it was nice to finally meet them in person. And, and I felt like I've, it was like that scene in Erin Brockovich where she just knows everyone. I felt like I knew everyone in their story, and it was nice to connect. Um, so that allowed you to build your business, which allowed you to start your crowdfunding again. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that helped me build the audience, the crowdfunding. Um, and and it is like when you're in the crowdfunding, it's it's this awkward kind of middle ground of you know how hard people work for money. You don't want to push asking for money, but you really want support. But you know, it's I found it a bit uncomfortable sometimes. Um, cause it is asking for, for people's money. And so it was, you know, even if people could share it or tell someone or that, I was just as appreciative with that. Um, but uh, yeah, it is. And it was a full-time job and it was every day. Like you, and you, it becomes obsessive. Like you wake up and you check your phone. How many donations have I got? How many, you know, messages have I got? And, um, yeah, it's tricky, but I was very lucky that I, um, there was a really, really lovely group of people that helped support the film. Well, that's excellent. So, okay, so that's, this gets you started on your crowdfunding, so now you have money to travel and actually make the film with. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, what I had to do, the original crowdfunding campaign was like an in-an-ideal-world feature documentary budget, um, mm-hmm. which isn't small. 
so when I redid it, it was literally what is the minimum that I need to kind of get the next round of footage. So I just thought I need a trip to the States because I'm trying to make a film about someone that doesn't live in England. Right. So even though I'm blessed with the fact that um, it was filmed here, so there's cast and crew that live here that I can interview in the meantime, it's, I mean, I, I need to interview and hang out with Sam. So it was what do I need to get to the States to do like two weeks of interviews? And so that was what my my cutoff and my goal was. And then I thought, once I've done that, then I'll work out the next round. Okay. Did you get that part taken care of? That part was taken care of. So that got us to the States in September, where we went to Alamo City Comic Con. We went to L.A. to do some interviews. We went to San Diego. That was really important because we hung out with Sam and his family. We interviewed his wife and his five kids and the son-in-laws and the daughter-in-laws. And we um, went to this barbecue with him. And we went down to Mexico because he does security. He's a protects people from assassinations in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Of course he does. So we we spent the day with him down there, and so that was really key for for content. And then we flew to Chicago to interview Alex Ross as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I love his artwork. I, he, yeah, I really incredible. do. And his house, we went to his house to interview him, and his basement, You, I mean, you would be a kid in a candy store. I mean, he had a, like a life-size silver surfer he had pinball machines he had comics everywhere and just figurines on every wall and it was it was amazing it was amazing i would love to see that that sounds fantastic yeah well in the background on facebook there's a little video of him um that i put up to show people and you can see some of his stuff in the, the background a little bit there but it was it was incredible and he was really really lovely he's interesting one he doesn't have email he doesn't use computers he don't, like he's completely cut off from technology because he he wants to be present. So uh, I quite I was quite envious of that. Yeah, I you know that's awesome if he can do it. I that's really cool. I don't know that I could. I don't know that I'd want to try. Yeah, well he doesn't <laughs> you know? need to. You know, he, yeah. he he uses his hands for work, not his, his keyboard. So he has that advantage. You know, most people can't do that, but. Well, he still paints, too. I mean, like, actually paints, paints. Yeah. So you have to send canvases around. You can't just scan a pencil drawing and No, exactly. On. He did, though, um, an uh, official poster for the reunion, too, which I'm not sure if you've seen, with literally every character, which was very special. And I was we interviewed him while he was in the middle of it, and it was this huge, like, four-foot canvas. It was It was insane. So uh, that, that was pretty special. So they were – I think he's releasing them – at San Diego Comic-Con, though, commercially. Uh, but we did, everyone who bought a ticket for the reunion got this three-foot-long poster signed by him and Melody and Sam and Brian and Peter Wingard, so it was pretty special. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I think I have seen it. It's it's a long, it's like a not very tall, very long yeah. side-to-side one, and every character. Yes, that's and, the one. And, and Flash is in the middle holding the sword. Yeah. I have seen that. Yeah. It is a fantastic painting. It really you know? is. It's really special. All right, so that takes care of your American shooting. Um, now, is there anybody that ha- either has not wanted to come on board or for a reason other than they're no longer with us, you've had trouble tracking down and getting um, on film? Well, it's not. hopefully not the end of our American trip because we do oh, okay. have people to interview. This is this is kind of the, the ups and downs of trying to do a film yourself. So there are people like Seth MacFarlane who said yes to an interview, but we need to get back to the States to do it. Um, Deep Roy has said yes to an interview, but he's in the States. Um, a couple of my friends uh, have a huge collection of memorabilia, and they're in Washington, so I want to go and interview them. And 
so there is another states trip that I want to do. But in terms of people that I I haven't yet got, um, that it's in there's a few. There's Robbie Coltrane, who apparently mm. lives in Glasgow and doesn't really come down from Glasgow other than to work. So he's one, and because he was the man at Hangar, I you know I I would like to interview him because um, it was one of his first films. There's Timothy Dalton and Max von Sydow, who I'm I I only know their agents, so I'm trying to work out how to connect with them. Um, Ornella Muti has said yes, but she's in Rome, so I need to raise funds to get to Rome for that. Topol is somewhere in London or Israel, I've been told, and I I have a friend who knows the home address he lives in and wrote him a letter, but I haven't heard I haven't heard anything. Um, and there's a few, there's quite a few people like Edgar Wright. I want to interview uh, Nicholas Rogue, who was set to direct the film before uh, Mike Hodges came on board. I'd like to interview. I'd like to track down the guy that did the voiceover, the voice dubbing for Sam. So uh, he. There's still some question about how much he dubbed over, too, right? I know. Yeah, I've heard different things. So, uh, but I do talk to people about it, and it will be in the film. Fantastic. Yeah. So there's there uh, are a few. I've, there's maybe like twenty or thirty people that I still want to interview. You know, I, I hate to keep coming back to this, but um. I noticed that Timothy Dalton's one of the people that you're looking for. It certainly is. And if you know him, um, I will be your best friend. <laughs> well, I was going to say, he's uh, he played James Bond, didn't he? He did. So you're having trouble tracking down James Bond as you're flying around the globe. Maybe that answers your question of if I'm uh-huh. high or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I found the answer to that one. Yeah. Um, so I just, well, here's the thing. I found you guys accidentally, I think, or you, uh, back in, I think it was May. Mm-hmm. Now, remind me again how you, how you found out about the film. I want to say, I, w- I don't know for sure. I think it was, there's a, um, uh, I'm a giant Star Trek nerd, by the way, people who don't know. Okay. Um, there, there's a Star Trek podcast network, and I follow it, you know, both as a podcast and on Facebook as a group. If I remember right, somebody actually posted um, a cover image or something from your project where I think it's like a drawing of Sam's face and it says After Flash. Oh, it's like a white. Yes. Oh, that's the poster of the film. So somebody posted that and said, oh, you know, whatever. And I was, I, you know, immediately, because I'm, I'm the only person I know who's a fan of this movie, yeah. but I love this movie. Um so I, of course, immediately dig in, you know, call in sick to work that day and start, okay, who's <laughs> making this movie, you know? Um, so I found you, and I, I can't remember if it was Facebook or Twitter, but I reached out to you, and you were gracious enough to respond, I mean, pretty immediately. I do try. Uh, and so I do appreciate that. But then, funny enough, about a week or two after I first contacted you, one day, my phone gets eight text messages back-to-back. Mm. And I look at it. It's Flash Gordon to appear at ModestoCon. Now, first off, I didn't know we had a... Oh, I'm in Central California. Modesto is the city I live in. Right. Modest, Modesto is famous for George Lucas. and is uh, where, George. Is that where he lives? The, no, this is where he grew up as a child. Right. He was someone that said no to an interview. Oh, I'm sure. He's, he's kind of reclusive these days. Yeah. But most people don't know, or some people don't know, that originally uh, George Lucas tried to make a Flash Gordon film. Mm-hmm. And when he couldn't secure the rights, he created Star Wars. Yeah. But so anyways, I get this thing. Eight people go, hey, the guy that played Flash Gordon is going to be in Modesto in July. 
And I'm like, oh, that's amazing. So I, of course, you know, start trying to figure out how to get a hold of the people doing the con or get a hold of Sam. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I was trying to negotiate something with you. And then when I was talking to somebody, I was like, you know, it's really less stalkerish than it sounds. It really is, but it sure doesn't come across <laughs> that way. So that was kind of, for me, this really cool thing is that I discovered this project you're working on and that Sam J. Jones is actually coming here all within probably two weeks of each other. So did you, have you met him yet? Has it, has it come? I, I have not. That'll be in July. <laughs> That's um, very exciting. I I don't know if I have an interview with him, but I do have one with Doug Jones, who played the, the Fawn in Pan's Labyrinth. Okay. And, and played the Silver Surfer in the second Fantastic Four yep. movie. He's also going to be playing Count Orlock in the remake of Nosferatu. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so no matter what, I'm coming out of this with a pretty good deal. You know. Now, I'd like to ask you a question, actually, which is something sure. that interests me. You said you were like a Star Trek fan, and you seem to like love cons and all the people that go there. And and I was there are certain Comic Cons that you get where some of the people that are attending are really niche to their role, like background guy from third Lord of the Rings, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of Jedi stunt double stand in, like as a fan, are they, do they interest you to go and meet them and get their autographs? And okay. So me personally, um, I don't go to a lot of conventions. I go to some here and there. If like last year, it turned out Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes and uh, Burt Ward and Adam West were going to be at the Reno Comic Con. That's a, that's a pretty cool lineup. Yeah, and and the thing with the Reno Comic Con was we stay at the casino where they stay. The first time we went was on accident. We knew there was a Comic Con while we were in town. I pull into the, the driveway off of Virginia Street, and I'm looking at the car ahead of me, and I elbow my wife, and I go, Hey, is that Captain Kirk? Mm-hmm. She looks, and she looks, she goes, no, and then he takes a couple steps. She goes, Jeremy, that's William Shatner. And so I backed, I backed up onto the street, and I whipped around to the back of the hotel, and we ran from the back to the front. And I'm out of breath, mm-hmm. and I'm standing there. kid at the counter goes, um, can I help you? I'm like, did Captain Kirk just come through here? <laughs> And he looks around kind of shyly, and he nods his head, yes, because obviously he can't say, yeah. you know, what's, yeah. I go, but is there a, is there a Trek code that if he was... Well, that's what I'm trying to establish now. Yeah. Is I'm I'm like trying to feel it out. I go, why why is Captain Kirk here? He goes, well, the comic convention. I said, well, I knew the comic convention was here. Where is it? He goes, oh, you just go up to the second floor and take the Skywalk over. So I found out we're in that hotel. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, then a little bit later that day, uh, when we met some friends there. The whole point was to go there and drink copious amounts of alcohol and play dice. That was what we were going for. That's a good target. I thought so. And so we go to dinner at the buffet, and this tall, pale, beautiful redhead walks by about three times. And I'm not saying this so my wife will get mad at me, so I'm not admitting to this. <laughs> okay. I don't notice tall, beautiful redheads when they walk by. And I elbow her, and I go, hey, Deb, it's Amy Pond. Right. And she walks by again, and she says, I think that's her, you know, from Doctor Who. Yeah. So our friend Julian jumps up, chases her down. He comes back, and he goes, no. He goes, her name's Karen, and she's got an English accent. I go, she's got a Scottish accent, and her name's Karen, because Amy Fawn's the character. So I jumped up, got my picture taken with her. Oh, that was nice. Oh, yeah, it was very nice of her, especially since they make a living doing that. Exactly. Uh, so um, I'm not big on conventions normally. I used to take my kids to WonderCon when it was in San Francisco. 
um, where I, you know, we'd get autographs from people. So me, I never really got the small one, but I do know what you're talking about. Like you walk by a guy and he was the third guy on the second right-hand side in Planet of the Apes in 1971. Exactly. And I'm fascinated and, that they can, they, they make a living out of it. Like we were talking to some people and they just said, yeah, it's our pension. This is our retirement. Mm -hmm. We come to three of these a year and it completely sets us up. But it just, it always amazes me. I, I guess I, I, I don't understand levels of fans that, that, um, would it be attracted by, you know, like everyone in a film? And it, and well, it just surprises me all the time. And I you know, was just curious of your thoughts of it. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's kind of like you're looking, I hate to use Robbie Coltrane because obviously he, he was in Cracker. Um, and Harry and, Potter. And Harry, well, I was going to say in Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. And see, I know him from Cracker is what I know him from. But um, so somebody out there is chasing down Robbie Coltrane, not because of Harry Potter, but because he's the last mm -hmm. autograph they need from Flash Gordon. They have to get Guy in Hangar Bay. Yeah. Uh, almost like a, a collection. I can see that, but it, it's not something I'm really into. And yes. So I sometimes wonder if my geek cred really holds up compared to other people. Right. I guess, yeah, that's true. That's true. I remember, maybe it was Trekkies, the documentary, and it could have been in that one where they were auctioning off, or auctioning, as you would say, um, <laughs> a, a Klingon head makeup prosthetic piece that was worn in like one episode. And it went for like a few thousand dollars. And it was... And it was there that I think they interviewed people and they said I didn't expect, you know, the things that people will buy because it was just in the show. It doesn't matter kind of what it was. So uh, it just it fascinates me, the, the level of commitment, I guess, to uh, to certain films and shows. Now, did you guys get Star Trek The Next Generation over there? I think you did. Do you know what? Probably. I I remember watching Star Trek with my dad when I was younger. And, um, and I've, I'm not good with, like, character names because I haven't watched it for years, but... There was the guy that had the thing on his eyes. What was his name? Oh, Jordy. Yes. So I used to uh, go around with a hairband across my eyes when I was little because I wanted to be like him. But um, that's kind of as far as my Star Trek knowledge goes, so I'm not really sure. I would imagine so. They tend to love it, that kind of stuff here. Okay. Yeah, I just I, – well, yeah, because you know what? The only station that really plays it here now is BBC America, so you guys must have had it over there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure we did. But, yeah, there's – I mean, and I love Star Trek. But there are certain things about it that I'm just like, this one misses me somehow. I just, I didn't get into Like, I think Klingons are stupid. So you didn't go to the Klingon language school that they have? No, no, ma'am, I did not. <laughs> did you watch Trekkies as a Star Trek fan? Did you watch the film? You know, I did. Um, what did you think? But it's, it's been your, oh, yeah, I found it really fascinating. And, you know, again, I am a geek, but there are certain, like, wasn't there a, a lady on there who went to jury yeah. duty dressed in a, yeah. Yeah, there are certain things that I am just baffled by. Yeah, and the dentist who had reconstructed his dental surgery to be like the Enterprise. That's right. I forgot about that one. Yeah, it was. There fun. are certain. Yeah, no, it was. But there are just certain things about fandom that, and, and a lot of it I get. I mean, you're talking to a guy who has a half sleeve Flash Gordon tattoo. That's very impressive. Yeah. Can you uh, when you write like your blog on this? Can you put a picture of your tattoo up? Sure. Um, it's still getting, I got to get somebody to finish it because when it first started, the guy who started it got a contract with a television station to go fly high def cameras over Africa. So I've gotten other tattoos trying out artists to finish it in the meantime, but nobody's quite landed oh. the gig. If, but yeah, if I can we get out to the States again, I'll give it a go. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll give you a shot at it. What the hell? Amazon. <laughs> Try it. Have you ever given a tattoo before? Nope. Okay, we'll have to figure something out in the meantime, then. We'll work something out. Yeah, I'll get you a pig and a tattoo gun. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. All right, Lisa. So, in the meantime, um, you know, I, we wandered around quite a bit on this one. Um, what what do you have left to do? What are you hoping to get together to finish your film up? Well, it's a big question. Um, well, in, it is. In the meantime, it's, I mean, it's all, for me, kind of a, a next step process. So, at the moment, I'm editing sections, individual sections that are then put together in a rough, full edit. Um, and then just as I get more interviews, piece them in. But in a perfect world, I would have another America shoot. I'd have um, a European shoot for Nella. If I can get Timothy Dalton, that would mean going to Belfast. Um, and then I've been very lucky with people offering now to do the music and do graphics. So I think depending on how funding goes, um, I will try and just pull a lot of strings and pull in a lot of help and um, and try and get it done that way. So it really is just trying to finish it on my own without any additional funding um, until something happens. And then if no funding comes in, then I just I do it myself. So uh, so it's a it's a it's it's hard to not be sure about where it's heading. You know, you normally when you do a project, you get a commission, you get the budget and then you allocate the budget and you get crew and. And this is, uh, yeah, not like that at all. But a lot of people who do independent film and documentaries would completely understand that you just have to do as much as you can. So that would be my kind of end goal. I mean, I'd love to get it done this year. My personal goal was to have it finished as much as I could by August um, and then see how I went. But I, there's a level that I, I don't want to just say it's finished um, when there's still some interviews that I haven't got. So, you know, that would be pending those okay is there is there a make or break for you like if i don't get max von Seidel, i i'm not finishing or, oh, or are you just- i mean if i could get seth mcfarlane timothy dalton max von Seidel, those three would be wonderful um brian blessed and peter wingard have said yes to interviews so i'm just trying to lock those in so obviously they would be for me i would have to have those interviews so as soon as i set the date and get over there to film them then that will be a big tick but I definitely think Timothy, Max, and Seth would be wonderful. Um, you know, I'm not sure people like Max, if they're always going to be too busy or if, how they feel about Flash Gordon. You know, they've done so many other things. Maybe it is just a job to them, and they don't really feel like revisiting the past. So I don't know what their attitude is towards the film. So it's hard for me to make or break. I guess what I would do is just see where it's at once I have as much as I can and then how I feel when I watch it. If I feel like it's complete, but I'm watching it as a fan as well, and I know that there mm-hmm. are certain people that if I watched it and just didn't see them, I would be a bit disappointed. Well, yeah, but I think also as a fan, when we see that, because we've seen documentaries where so-and-so would not would not concede to an interview. Yeah. Or, and I think, you know, yeah, we're disappointed, but we always understand yeah. we get it. Yeah, we know that the filmmakers try it as well. <laughs> really? I think. I think we understand. <laughs> so I might have to put a disclaimer at the beginning of the film going, please don't be mad. I really did try. Here's my email chain. <laughs> Here's everything I did. Yeah. Um, Queen would be someone else that would be on my, oh, I, I really wouldn't want to release it without them. But, you know. I I personally would cut off my right <laughs> off if I could meet Brian May. Mm. Um, that man is a genius. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, and, uh, he's a genius. It's on tour a lot. So, well, and what is he? He's the, he's the dean of astrophysics at Oxford now, too. Is that right? Actually, I don't know that one. Okay, I'll, I'll have to double check that. Somebody told me that, yeah. and I, I of course just assumed it was a fact because who makes that up? It wouldn't surprise me though. So yeah, he he would be him and um, Roger would be two people that I would just go because mm, I cut the music section because um, we had a great interview with Howard Blake, who's the composer. So. There's lots of his really funny stories about, um, you know, and interesting stories about working on it with them and how the music process happened that I would love to have their side of the story cut within that. But God, I, I, I hope you get that because that is something I'd love to me see. Me too. Do you know what? Then I think to answer your question, Timothy and, and Queen would be probably make or break for me. I would like to reserve the right to recall the witness at some point, though, if uh, something comes up. Of course. If I could. If I could have you back on, I would be just... Just an email away. Fantastic. All right, Lisa. Well, why don't you give us your website addresses? Uh, Lifeafterflash.com is the best. Okay. And Facebook uh, is just forward slash lifeafterflash. Okay. And then on Facebook, lifeafterflash. All right. Well, Lisa, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It was lovely to chat. Again, always, always my pleasure. That's lifeafterflash.com. And in the meantime, you can catch us at geekishcast.com. Facebook is facebook.com slash geekishcast. And I tweet from at the geekishcast. Please follow us on iTunes, Twitter, and uh, we'll, we'll be adding a follow us on Android subscribe button soon to the website as well. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Look out, Flash! What? Don't move! Stay where you are! Long live Flash! You've saved your ass! Have a nice day! Yeah!